which U.S. president said, quote, I'm not that interested in space. The surprising answer that rewrites the mythos of the moon landing next. But why some say the moon? Why choose this as our goal? And they may well ask, why climb the highest mountain? Why, 35 years ago, fly the Atlantic? Why does Rice play Texas? We choose to go to the moon. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Because that goal will serve to organize and measure the best of our energies and skills. Because that challenge is one that we're willing to accept, one we are unwilling to postpone, and one we intend to win, and the others too. Hello, history lovers, and welcome. I'm your host, Dean Carianis, and this is the History Author Show on iHeartRadio. In this episode, our time machine boldly goes where no man has gone before, fulfilling President John F. Kennedy's 1961 challenge to send an American to the surface of the moon and return him safely to Earth by the end of that decade. Half a century after NASA fulfilled JFK's vision in the summer of 1969, we look back at the long road of 10,000 small human steps and giant technological leaps that led to Neil Armstrong stamping his footprint in the lunar dust. Guiding our maiden voyage from Mission Control is Charles Fishman, author of One Giant Leap, the impossible mission that flew us to the moon. The most prestigious prize in business journalism is the Gerald Loeb Award, and our guest has won it three times. He's also the acclaimed author of The Walmart Effect and The Big Thirst, as well as co-author of A Curious Mind, which he wrote with Academy Award-winning producer and New York Times best-selling author Brian Grazer. You can follow our guest on Twitter at CFishman. That's the letter C, and the last name is spelled F-I-S-H-M-A-N. All right, now that we've piled into our spacesuit and jammed ourselves into the Eagle capsule, let's join Charles Fishman and take one giant leap. T-minus 15 seconds, guidance is internal. 12, 11, 10, 9, ignition sequence starts. 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, 0, all engine running. Liftoff, we have a liftoff, 32 minutes past the hour, liftoff on Apollo 11. I'm joined via Skype by Charles Fishman, author of One Giant Leap, the impossible mission that flew us to the moon. Thank you so much for making time to chat with the History Author Show. I am so happy to be here and happy happy to be considered a history author. <laughs> <laughs> it's a departure from you, right? When I read your bio and the introduction, it's something different. And yet I would not have known that this wasn't your sixth or seventh book. And especially on a topic like this, the moon landing, where you would think we already knew all we needed to know. I learned so much about this, even having been fascinated with the space program as a kid, since you mentioned that at the outset. How did that happen? How did you make that switch? Because I imagine the only thing more daunting than actually landing on the moon would have been planning to write about something so complex. <laughs> you know, my first book was about Walmart, which was a pretty big topic. When I wrote about Walmart 10 years ago, Walmart was literally the single most written about corporation in America. But very little of what was written about Walmart actually told you anything. Huh. My second book was about water. <laughs> so I, I stepped up huh. I stepped up the breadth of my topicality, but I kept the first letter the same. <laughs> and in both those cases and in the case of the race to the moon, there are literally whole libraries of books, right? If you're going to sit down and write a book about water, 
there's actually an encyclopedia of water that I now own that is like an, an old Encyclopedia Britannica, 12 volumes, that papery, thin paper, each volume, six or 700 pages. And that 12-volume Encyclopedia of Water is only about the physical properties of water. (laughs) So if you're going to sit and write a book about water, you have to have thought about what you're going to add. Don't waste people's time. And that that was front and center with writing about the moon. The 12 astronauts who have landed on the moon, who have walked on the moon, have among them written 15 books. So even if you weren't taking notes, it would take you a month just to read the books about the moon, just written by the people who've been there. (laughs) And that there is literally a library of historical and technological literature about going to the moon. And then it turns out that there are, I venture to say, millions of pages of technical documentation about the race to the moon. And so you do have to say to yourself, if you're thinking about it in a constructive way, what am I going to say that's different? How am I going to avoid wasting the time of my readers and also wasting my own time? And so I was determined to do a couple things. One was I tell the story in One Giant Leap from the perspective of the people who got the astronauts to the moon. The astronauts went to the moon but they aren't the people who made going to the moon possible at all. And they are the first to say that. They always credit the people back on Earth who made the mission possible. Well, there were 11 Apollo missions. There were 33 astronauts in those spacecraft. Some of them went more than once, so not actually 33 individual people. There are 27 people. But 11 missions, 33 people, 410,000 people working to get those 11 missions into space. So wow. that's uh, right. That That's the story I was interested in. So that was point one. And point two was it was really hard to go to the moon. We have this very cartoonish <laughs> image of it now because of YouTube and the History Channel and the way things are presented in 10th grade American history class. President Kennedy gave a speech. It was a good speech. And then a few years later, two guys were walking around on the moon in spacesuits. (laughs) There you go. That's how that worked. It was really hard. It was impossible when Kennedy said go to the moon. And so I wanted to recapture a real sense of real people having to struggle to make it happen. And then I, I really think the impact of going to the moon on American society was completely underestimated at the time and continues to be underestimated. And so I wanted to recapture a sense of how hard it was, but I wanted to reassess how valuable the moon was for us back on Earth. And so that's what I hope to add, a different perspective telling the story from Earth, a real sense of how hard it was to make it happen and why it mattered. And at the time, you said, what was it, roughly 400,000 people, 420,000 that were involved with the Apollo project? There were, yeah, 410,000 people at the peak, and that's more people than were fighting in Vietnam for three of the big years of the war. So that's sort of astonishing, almost half a million people. I actually, I actually did some amazing math, which really brings that figure to life. I added up the total number of work hours it took. There were 2,500 hours of Apollo space flights, slightly more than 100 days in those 11 flights. Even that number is a little surprising. Who knew that Apollo astronauts were in flight for 100 days, including walking on the moon and coming home and so forth? 100 days of space flight. For, for every hour of space flight, 1 million hours of work was done back on Earth. And what's a million hours of work, Dean? The average American works 100,000 hours in an entire career. Wow. So for every hour of Apollo spaceflight, for every hour they were flying, they're flying home, walking around on the moon, the equivalent work of 10 entire lifetimes was done for each hour. Imagine, imagine that you were allowed to do something for one hour, 10 people had worked their entire careers to get you ready to do 
And then the second hour came along and 10 more people had worked their entire careers for that hour, every hour, all the way to the moon and back. That's breathtaking. That's an incredible level of intensity. Literally, it was the hardest thing human beings have ever done by far outside of a war. I tried to capture that intensity with a bunch of the stories in the book, many of which I think you're going to ask about. Definitely, because the sound that you have in your voice there, the passion, and I'm feeling my own face. I'm always conscious of my own reaction when I'm in an interview, so I can capture that for the people listening. I mean, I have a big smile on my face like I'm a kid again, and they're still flying the Apollo missions. I was born just after the moon landings, as just about everybody alive today was. Only 30% of the people alive today have ever looked up at an unconquered moon. Anybody over 50 has seen it, has seen it happen, saw the moon and said, hey, we'll get there someday. Everyone else under that 30% has seen that moon. You talked about water and about studying that, and I thought, hey, this is why he went to the one place where he wouldn't have to worry about water anymore, which was the moon. But then I remembered you have to measure every little thing, and everybody knows how heavy water is. For instance, the fuel. You said for every gallon of fuel you're going to send up, you have to have two gallons just to shoot that stuff up into the air. All these incredible technological feats and all the math required, I did a little bit of math, which is why I laughed when you said about you illustrating it. And that was that in 1961, the population of the U.S. is 183.7 million. So that's one in every 469 people is working on the project. And then when you think of the population, you have children in there, you have the elderly in there, you have people that don't have the skills for it. You very well would have known somebody who played some role in it. I don't want to say small role, but took one of those steps. And yet, in our popular mind, we boil it down just like you said. JFK says we choose to go to the moon. NASA starts shooting guys like Alan Shepard and John Glenn into space. The eagle lands. Armstrong plants the flag. He gets home in time for dinner, roll credits, and we move on. <laughs> I I can say from having read One Giant Leap, that that doesn't even scratch the lunar surface. There's just something about this where it seems so simple and yet it's so complex where you say, oh, okay, we're going to go there because we've always been able to live with it. But then there's little beautiful details in your book. For instance, the preface is titled The Mystery of Moon Dust. And that's your first line. The moon has a smell. I never even thought of that before. I, I never certainly heard it before. And I said to myself right away from that first line that one giant leap wouldn't just be a rehashing of all those things that we've read before. You talked about how you distilled down the fascinating science and the human stories behind it. But this also takes place against the backdrop of this life and death struggle between communism and the free world in the Cold War. And that's something where I couldn't believe I hadn't heard more of that until I picked up One Giant Leap. It was another thing where it was very two-dimensional. We go, we beat the Russians, rah-rah, we all sing maybe some John Philip Sousa songs and, and are, are really proud of our system. But that's not what that was either. So that had to be another whole pile of research that you have to delve into to tear away all of the mythology about that struggle between the U.S. and USSR. So how do you tackle that as you're diving into it? Well, you know, that's a great question. I originally thought that I just wanted to tell the technology story, that I just wanted to tell the story of how you did it. It was impossible when Kennedy said, let's go to the moon. There wasn't a rocket that was big enough anywhere in the world to send people to the moon. There wasn't a computer small enough and fast enough to literally do the math necessary to fly to the moon while you were flying to the moon. The smallest computers were the size of three or four refrigerators, and yet you could not fly to the moon by just taking radio commands. You had to have <laughs> a small, fast computer controlling the spaceship. We didn't have any spacesuits. We didn't have a spaceship that could land on the moon. When Kennedy said, let's go to the moon, there was an argument literally going on at that moment inside NASA about whether human brains would work in zero gravity. Would you be able to think in space? Now, that seems silly sort of now. We've flown to the moon. We have a space station. We've got six people living on that space station. 
24 hours a day, 365 days a year, going back literally 18 years. Of course, you can think in space. But before anyone had been in space for more than a few minutes, and at that moment, Americans had only been in space for five minutes, you didn't know how the human brain would react to zero gravity. So it was a very reasonable question. So we were really, really operating in the dark in terms of understanding what it was going to require. And so I thought, you know, that's a big enough story. I want to put the politics aside. But what you discover when you start reading about going to the moon, when you start reading about the 1960s, it would literally like saying you were going to try and tell the story of the Vietnam War without getting into the politics of the Vietnam War at home. I'm just going to tell the story of the battles. <laughs> well, that's that. Yeah, I'm, I'm laughing because the Vietnam War was both the war in Vietnam and the war at home. And they had they were all swirled around each other. You couldn't understand either place without the other. And you actually can't understand the race to the moon without understanding that it was sparked by the Cold War, that Kennedy wanted to beat the Russians in space. The Russians were actually just crushing us in space. They did everything first. The Russians launched the first spacecraft of any kind. That was Sputnik. <laughs> A month later, they launched the first animal into space. That was Laika. So that meant they not only launched a spaceship, it had a cabin. The cabin was pressurized. There was a little TV camera beaming back pictures of like, we hadn't launched anything yet. They launched the first spacecraft that went to the moon, mm. launched a spacecraft that photographed the far side of the moon. They launched the first astronaut. That was Yuri Gagarin, the first human being. They launched the first woman into space. They launched the first spaceship with two people in it. They did the first space walk where they opened the hatch and went outside. And Kennedy was very frustrated. And what he said at the time was being second in space is the same as losing. And I don't think we should be losing. And so he said, tell me how we can win. The science and policy people said the only way to win is to say we're going to go to the moon. And so it was politics that sounded the starter gun on this, on the race to the moon. And you can't really understand what happened separate from the politics. What's amazing is the Russians were chasing us right up to the end when Apollo 11, the first U.S. mission to the moon, got to the moon. There was a unmanned Russian spaceship at the moon already that day, and its job was to grab moon rocks from the surface and race back to the Soviet Union before Armstrong, Aldrin, and Collins could come home with moon rocks from the U.S. mission. So the rivalry lasted right to the end. But what's interesting is that over the course of the decade, the mission itself became much larger than its origin. We don't think of landing on the moon as a victory over the Soviet Union. We think of it as a victory for sort of human determination and human ingenuity. And so as the decade went by, the mission itself sort of became the thing, the goal. And the science and engineering really became a lot of what people paid attention to. My gosh, how did they send a car to the moon? You know, what are those spacesuits made out of? But you can't really understand the motivation without understanding the politics. And the politics plays such a part in One Giant Leap and in the Kennedy mythos, the whole idea of Camelot and when you get assassinated, you die tragically, you die young. We have all these great pictures of you just being a dashing person full of energy. That's going to inform the way that we look at this. I read chapter six of One Giant Leap and the title is The Secret Space Tapes. Kennedy starts to get cold feet. And you wonder to yourself when you when you read that, and that happened so many times, this book really made sure it hooked you almost like a novel, which I mean is a compliment because I'm a big fiction reader. You quote the president as saying, I'm not that interested in space, which seems shocking to us, right? Because we've absorbed all of this mythical pop-up book version of what happened to get us to the moon. And you tell readers that not only did he nearly not deliver that pivotal speech. Why does Rice play Texas? We choose to go to the moon, all of that. But he gets like a smattering of polite applause. The inspiring line inspired no reaction or very little reaction. 
describe some of that that you found so interesting when you start digging into this and you say, man, I figured the whole country was suddenly going to be cheering and one in every 500 people, right, have to pitch in for all of the spending the lifetime's worth of work on this. But what was your reaction when you start digging into it and you see, hey, there's some apathy, there's some conflict and disagreement that almost prevents Neil Armstrong from getting his foot down there? I just want to pick up on one thing you've said. You know, during the Vietnam War, there was really a sense in the country that everybody either had someone connected to the war directly or their neighbor did, the high school friend, right? There was this sense that the Vietnam War was part of the texture of 1960s America and that it touched everyone. Well, you know what? Almost as many people worked on Apollo as fought in Vietnam There were 20,000 companies doing Apollo contracting in the country. If you do the math, that's 400 companies in every state. That's a lot of companies. So even if you weren't working directly on it at IBM, at General Motors, at Boeing, at Grumman, you were working for a company where it was a big part of what was going on and you knew that. And so I think NASA and the race to the moon in the same way was part of the culture of the country and part of the economy of the country at the time. Every single state had prime contractors for Apollo. NASA was very good at that. So even small states like Montana and North Dakota and Wyoming had Apollo contracts, believe it or not, and the big states really did. So it really was pervasive. So the fun for me was that literally every day I discovered what I came to think of as these kind of hidden stories, stories that are lost to history. They aren't unknown in the sense that I didn't like FOI documents that no one's ever seen before, but there's so many pieces of Apollo and there's so many stories that have sort of been lost to history that that's what was fun. That was certainly true of the politics. So Kennedy gives this huge speech on May 25th, 1961, which is a Friday. He calls it a second state of the union. It was kind of extraordinary in political terms. He'd only been president for four months at that point, since January 20th. He had given an inaugural address, (laughs) a state of the union address, and then four months in, things actually are not going that well in his presidency, and he decides to give a second State of the Union address in an effort to kind of reset the political conversation in the country. But his original plan was just to send the typewritten manuscript of the speech to Congress and let a clerk read it on each side to the House and the Senate. He wasn't going to deliver the speech. It was Lyndon Johnson who said to him, Mr. President, if you want this speech to have impact, The way for it to have impact is for you to give it. And so literally he was invited to give the speech on Thursday afternoon before he delivered it on Friday at noon. Like Congress had to scramble. Somebody picked up the phone and said, he's changed his mind. He's not going to just send up a big pile of paper. He's going to read it himself. Well, it's worth asking. I mean, alternative history is a silly game, of course, because you can't go back and relive anything. But I'm not sure the speech would have had nearly the impact that it did if he hadn't delivered it in person. Lots of presidents, including every single president since him, has had grand space plans. Both George Bush's, Bill Clinton, Barack Obama, lots of we're going to Mars. None of it ever happened. None of it ever happened. I'm fascinated by the fact that at the last minute, Kennedy said, let's do this speech in person. I think Vice President Johnson is right, and off he goes to deliver it, and it does have a huge impact across the country. Now, you're right. If you listen to the speech on YouTube or or on the recordings from the Kennedy Library, the applause does not come at the moment that it seemed like it was designed to come. He says, I think, you know, before this decade is out, we should send a man to the moon and bring him home safely. And that sounds like the applause line, and there's absolute silence. There is applause before that. There is applause after that. At one point, he says, I've made the judgment that this is what we need to do, but I think the American people need to make that judgment, and you in Congress need to, you know, make that judgment too. And that gets wild applause. And so 
I don't think they were unenthusiastic about the plan. I just don't think they felt like that was the line they were supposed to applaud. But that was that was a fascinating moment. And you know, the politics changes over the course of two years. Kennedy's president for almost three years, but the moon mission is only out there for about two years and six months. And for Kennedy, it is a purely pragmatic effort. I want to go to the moon to beat the Russians to the moon as part of the Cold War. He does, a year after starting the race, give this beautiful speech in Houston at Rice University. He actually, in that speech, predicts that Houston will be the headquarters of the next frontier, which is kind of remarkable given that, in fact, we use Houston as the symbol for ground control, for mission control. It's often a synonym for mission control, both NASA and in the popular imagination. So he got that right. And that speech is really a beautiful essay delivered out loud about why space flight's important to humanity. It's about the romance and the power of the next frontier, the inspiration of pushing yourself beyond what you can do. We go to the moon, not because it is easy, but because it is hard. But in fact, John Kennedy was not actually captivated by that romance himself. And in 1963, in the weeks before he was assassinated, we have a conversation in which he is told by the head of NASA, we're not going to land on the moon while you're president, Mr. President. Even if you're elected to a second term, we're not going to make it by the end of 1968, January of 1969. And that's an extraordinary moment to be able to listen to when the head of NASA tells the man who said, let's go to the moon, it's going to be the next person who's the president who's going to get to celebrate that event. You can literally hear the disappointment in John Kennedy's voice. But already at that point, he was kind of changing his mind. He was beginning to think, that he didn't need to go to the moon to beat the Russians, that the U.S. space program was already becoming so powerful and so sophisticated that it was clear we were better than the Russians. And so I say in the book, would we have landed on the moon in the summer of 1969? Would we now be celebrating the 50th anniversary if Kennedy hadn't been assassinated? And my answer is, no, we would not have. John Kennedy would never have come out and said, I don't think we ought to go to the moon. What he would have done would have been to let Congress set the pace. And in 1963, Congress was already getting impatient with how much going to the moon was going to cost. And so Kennedy could easily have said, I really believe in going to the moon. I think this is important, but I can't do anything about what Congress is doing. And if Congress had put the funding off, Then the date would have slid to 1970 and 1971. And we all know that when space missions are pushed off into the future, they often don't happen. So it's one of my more provocative conclusions, but I think we would not have gone to the moon at that pace if Kennedy had survived. I think he would have focused his money and his energy on other things. He would have concluded we were already beating the Russians. We didn't need to go to the moon. To think that there's any debt to be owed to a presidential assassin, but it changes everything and including this, and it doesn't only change things for, as you said about alternate history, people think of the good things and everybody idealizes it, but then you realize he would have just been having his presidency and he would have had priorities and things shift and presidents change their mind and we can't know what would have happened, but I thought that was a fascinating thought because again, with the 50 years of hindsight, we grew up, all of us thinking, well, he says it and it happens, but it doesn't. It's those 10,000 challenges, those 10,000 tiny steps that have to happen for us to get there. And IBM, for instance, has to have a computer that's going to stay on for a full 24 hours. That's not going to happen. You had the telephone ringing before, and I thought of the digital beep you mentioned, that when Sputnik goes overhead, that's the first time people would have heard that digital beep. The technology is so primitive at the time. If you think of 50 years before 1960, we're inventing the first neon lamp. And then now we're 50 years from 1960. They didn't need all these things, a heat shield. No one ever needed one that would survive 5,000 degrees Fahrenheit. Somebody has to go and buy that. 
<laughs> or make it rather, invent it. It can't be bought. <laughs> I said bought because I was thinking you mentioned your previous book, The Walmart Effect, and it made me think that if you and I were NASA engineers working on the Apollo project in those early days, if we walked into a store, let's say a Radio Shack, or we walked into a Walmart, and they said, hey, you can load yourself up here in 2019 and travel back to the 1960s and take some of this off-the-shelf stuff that's easily available to Americans in the future, what do you think we'd pile in our cart? What things that we do just take for granted today would we want to bring back so that we didn't have to invent it from scratch? Well, look, that's a that's a fun that's a fun question. Let me let me make one point about the alternate history. The one the one reason to think about why we ended up going to the moon, what would John Kennedy have done, what happened because he was assassinated, is to put into relief how things did play out, right? Lyndon Johnson used the assassination of John Kennedy to get things done. He used the assassination to get the moon landing, the politics of going to the moon, locked in. He used the assassination of John Kennedy to get the Civil Rights Act passed and the Voting Rights Act passed. And Kennedy was publicly in favor of the moon, in favor of civil rights, in favor of voting rights because President Kennedy had been killed. Lyndon Johnson was able to look people in the eye and say, I'm, I'm sure you don't want to sully the memory of the martyred president now, do you? So people sort of scoff at alternate history, but what it does do is help you say, well, here's how it did go. Why did it? What's the meaning of that? And I think that's very valuable in this case. You know, what would we put in a shopping cart and take to the time machine and go back. <laughs> you know, everything today is computer controlled. There's tens of thousands of lines of software running the transmission in your car. Computer chips play happy birthday in a birthday card, but computer chips run the sensors for your seat belts. They control your airbags. Computers run the engine in your vehicle. Most people don't even go for a walk without their computer chips today. They've got their phone or Apple Watch sort of keeping track of their steps. So the thing that you would want to take back immediately is a level of computing technology, which was literally unimaginable in those days. NASA either had access to the most advanced computing technology of the era or helped invent it. The computer that flew those spaceships to the moon was the smallest fastest, most reliable computer that had ever been created, and it was created to fly to the moon. It was what's called a general purpose computer. They they designed the equivalent of a desktop computer that could handle anything, and then they programmed it to fly to the moon. That computer did not have the brain power of your microwave oven. It had less computing power than your dishwasher. So, so if you're going to take something back, that, that's something you would take back. The sensor systems, the electronics, all of that. I hesitate to use the word primitive because it kind of makes it sound like, you know, they were using bubble gum and bailing wire. There was nothing primitive about it, but it was basic. It was basic compared to what we rely on now. People say, you know, your iPhone has more computer power than the spaceship computers. It's not even close to the right comparison. Amazing. One person's iPhone has more storage and more computing power than all the computers that NASA had access to during a moon mission. Total, added up together. And so, so what's really impressive is what they were able to do with that, that technology. Not that it was primitive, but that really smart people were able to squeeze incredible quantities of work out of computer technology that was very, very basic. Okay, Neil, we can see you coming down the ladder now. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. You're enjoying my conversation with Charles Fishman, author of One Giant Leap. The Impossible Mission That Flew Us to the Moon. You can find him on Twitter at C. Fishman. That's the letter C-F-I-S-H-M-A-N. 
A Goodreads review says of the book, quote, In one giant leap, Charles Fishman introduces readers to the men and women tasked with putting a man on the moon. From the halls of MIT, where the eccentric and legendary digital pioneer Charles Draper created the two computers aboard Apollo 11, to the factories where hundreds of women weave computer programs with copper wire, Fishman captures the sweeping achievement of these ordinary Americans. Charles, the cliché is, they put a man on the moon, but they can't do X, and it's something we've heard for 50 years and something you talk about in One Giant Leap, something that should be aspirational, that if, hey, if we can do that, there's anything we can do that's hurt by all of the turmoil, the assassinations, the Vietnam War during the 1960s. Having gone and lived in this era now, for the time it took you to write the book, what does that saying say to you today? Is it a cliche? Does it seem like people have lost all meaning when they speak it? <laughs> yes to all of that. <laughs> I think it's important. The first thing I think it's important to say is that phrase, if we can put a man on the moon, why can't we fill in your favorite unsolved problem? It's often used in this nagging and sort of scolding tone. In the 1960s themselves, we actually tackled all those problems. I sort of account for this in one section of the book, but during the 1960s, poverty across the United States cut by 40%. Poverty among senior citizens because of the dawn of Social Security cut by 50%. The Voting Rights Act was passed. More than double the number of African-American people voted in 1964's presidential election as voted in 1960. Imagine doubling voter turnout for a key minority group, for a key ethnic group in just four years because of the Voting Rights Act. We passed the Clean Water Act and the Clean Air Act. And you know what? Every single cubic foot of air, every single body of water in the United States today is cleaner than it was in the 1960s because of those laws. So we tackled integration, civil rights, poverty. We tackled the hardest problems that needed to be tackled in the 1960s while we were flying to the moon. So the first thing to say is, the complaint doesn't actually apply to the 1960s. People say, you know, why were we doing this when we were neglecting these problems back on Earth? We weren't neglecting those problems. We were trying to tackle them as well. It is a cliche. It's a way of settling an argument. Like, if we could fly to the moon, surely we can solve our environmental problems, solve our, our educational problems, solve our problems of poverty or opportunity. But it's not a very useful thing to say because it doesn't offer any insight into how to solve those problems. But here's the most amazing thing. You sort of alluded to it in passing. A lot of the technology that had to be invented to get us to the moon couldn't be easily manufactured in the 1960s. We could envision the solution, we could make a prototype, but then we didn't have the, the ability to make it the way you would imagine making something modern. Computers are a perfect example. The computers that flew those spaceships to the moon were the absolute most advanced cutting edge computers of their moment. But we didn't have good computer manufacturing, good memory manufacturing procedures at that time. So the circuitry for those computers was hand woven, one wire at a time, one one and zero at a time by women using a needle and a wire instead of thread. It is mind boggling to imagine hand weaving the wiring of a computer, but that was the only choice we had. Those computers only had 73 KB of memory. They did everything they needed to do with 73 KB of memory. If you get an email of the morning headlines from your local newspaper, it contains more data than that. But it still took eight weeks to weave the programming for a single computer, for two dozen women sitting at these sophisticated looms with actual needles to weave the circuitry for a single computer. So the fact that something was hard or tedious or required this sort of advanced technology combined with handcrafted manufacturing, that didn't slow anybody down. And so what I came away with this vivid sense of was Americans will do what they are asked to do. 
We like to be asked to do hard things, and we will tackle the hardest thing that we are asked to tackle, and then we will do it. Tell us something's impossible, and eight years later, we will prove to you that it wasn't impossible, that it was, in fact, possible. So I actually like the phrase, if we can put a man on the moon, in the sense that it not used as a kind of scolding reference, but as a reminder that we are capable of tackling and solving our hardest problems. And I, I came away from my years studying this, nothing but optimistic. America of the 1960s was not different than America of 2019. We are the same people. In fact, this is a much better country in 2019 than it was in 1969 in almost every way. And so if someone asks us to do something hard, we will find a way of making it happen. You talk about those women that are there, and I'm thinking of them with the needles. I wanted to remind everyone, they can't touch those wires. The two wires can't touch each other. I'm thinking of Bletchley Park in the UK where they cracked Hitler's Enigma codes with even more primitive computers than what they would have had in 1961. That's 20 years later. These women are there. They're weaving those lines of code with literal wire. That's hard and incredibly hard. A hard doesn't even get to the service. I want to smack myself for, for understanding what it is. If you're flying to the moon, precision matters, as you put it. Your mind can't wander. That's a talent and a dedication that I don't know in the era where we are all checking our smartphones every minute that we think we have. But you say in One Giant Leap that we do. I like that this is a story of people, not just the machines. Things like John Glenn, when he goes, looks at that capsule, you talked about how we didn't know what we would find. Well, so we thought it would be like Earth. So they were putting chairs in there. And John Glenn says, well, you don't really need those because you're going to be in zero G up there floating around. So a chair isn't the same as what you would have on the ground. There are, are so many of those stories. I wanted to pick out one because you mentioned it about sending a car to the moon. How, how in the heck do you get a car up there? That brings me to this line that the Auto Body Association ends up making two members of the Apollo team lifetime members. So you wonder how that happens. So tell us briefly, because that's the kind of story that's just so the nitty gritty, so the kind of story you'd tell if it happened to your uncle, or your friend who worked on the project. Just a really cool human moment where these astronauts become lifetime members of the Auto Body Association. So during the last three missions, we flew a car, we flew a car to the moon, a really ingenious contraption that is itself a great story. We, we only ended up sending a car to the moon because of the determination of two General Motors engineers who said, astronauts have got to have a car. It will change the experience of going to the moon. If they're going to have a car, it's going to be a GM car. <laughs> and they did it. They pulled it off. They persuaded NASA. The moment you're talking about is really kind of a funny moment, but also a serious moment. This was Apollo 17. It was the last mission to the moon. And on those last three missions, the exploration was really ambitious. Just for point of comparison, Armstrong and Aldrin, during the first moon landing, the lunar module was on the moon for about 22 and a half hours total. And Armstrong and Aldrin were outside walking around for about two and a half hours total. On the last three missions, the astronauts stayed on the moon for three days. You pointed out that the lunar module had no seats. They took the seats out to save weight. And because you're flying a spaceship mostly in zero gravity, what do you need seats for? But the lunar module also had no sleeping quarters at all. The, the astronauts just curled up on the floor while they were on the moon for three days. We really don't know what it's like to live on the moon because all those guys did was camp in, in the equivalent of a VW Beetle. So they were on the moon for three days, the last three missions, and each of the spacewalks lasted between seven and eight hours, and there were three of them. So on those last three missions, the astronauts were literally out exploring the moon as long or longer then we were on the moon total on the first mission. We really gained a sense of confidence about how to operate on the moon, about what we could accomplish, about how long we could stay and how long we could stay out. 
So this is the last mission, Apollo 17. Gene Cernan was the commander. Jack Schmidt was the lunar module pilot. Those were the two guys who, who got to land on the moon for Apollo 17. Jack Schmidt was the first non-military pilot to go to the moon. He was actually a geologist, a university-trained geologist, PhD geologist. They'd done their first drive around the, the moon for, for several hours. They'd come back. To base camp. They were getting ready to pack everything up and go back in the lunar module and rest. And a geology hammer that Gene Cernan had been using dropped on the fender of one of the wheels of the lunar rover. And it broke the fender, the fender, just as you would picture it, over the top of the wheel to prevent moon dust from flying everywhere. When the geology hammer hit the fender, it cracked a clip and they couldn't, they couldn't quite fix it. Like they couldn't get the fender to stay. And then they, before they went back inside, they drove the rover around a little bit. It was completely impossible to use without the fender. It seems kind of silly, but moon dust was really gritty, really, really painfully uh, inconvenient stuff. And having a wheel uncovered meant that the car sprayed dust over everything, all of the equipment on the car, the astronauts themselves. It was completely unusable. So they get back in the lunar module and working with mission control, they decide to make a substitute fender. And they used four plastic coated maps. You can imagine what those are like, almost like, uh, like placemats in a diner four plastic-coated maps of the moon, and a roll of duct tape. And they constructed a new fender, just a big, a big sheet of extended plastic that they, that they shaped into the right shape and then clipped into position when they got back outside. I think it's worth pausing for a minute to say someone thought to pitch a roll of duct tape into the lunar module and sort of thought, you know, ah, maybe it'll come in handy on the moon. And as it happens, it did. And so that fender worked perfectly. And the head of the Auto Body Association of America, who was a guy who owned Reg Predom, he owned a body shop. He was following this really closely. And before the astronauts even left the moon, he gave Cernan and Schmidt lifetime memberships in the Auto Body Association. He said, those astronauts, university graduates, pilots, geologists, they make damn good body and fender men. Amazing. <laughs> Such a great moment. And so the story of the fender itself, of course, made the front pages. You had to go digging deep to find that the Auto Body Association of America took great pride in knowing you could do that kind of car repair on the moon. They were really happy. And you say someone decided to take that duct tape along. I like a project like that. Okay, what do I have right here to solve a problem when I'm trying to fix something? They had to have fuel for everything. This wasn't just dump things in there. So it is really fortunate because I'm sure that that was a meeting. Do we need to take this along? It's going to be more fuel if we're going to shoot a roll of duct tape into space. And they did it. And thank God that they had it because they end up really, really needing it. So it's just, it's amazing. Like, Who would think duct tape? And yet it really can do anything. You're making two good points. The first is space missions are always limited by weight because you can only launch into space what the rocket thrust will carry. And the thrust of the rocket is itself limited by the design of the rocket. So in some ways, it's like imagining how much stuff can you put in a minivan? When you first start packing the minivan, it seems like there's a lot of room but eventually there's no more room. This is kind of the same thing. When you take a pound of equipment or a pound of fuel all the way to the moon, the duct tape falls into that category, you have to have three extra pounds of fuel on the launch pad in Florida to launch that pound all the way to the moon. That's how much power, that's how much thrust is required. But you know, the duct tape that's a little bit of a goofy story, and they would not have been able to do the second two moon explorations without fixing the fender. So the duct tape in that case kind of saved the mission. They might have cobbled something else together. But, you know, the duct tape was indispensable on Apollo 13. They had to make an air filtration device to take the carbon dioxide out of the cabin on Apollo 13. That was the mission that was crippled, where they were desperately trying to get the ships back to Earth 
after the explosion of an oxygen tank. And they used duct tape to help create an air filtration device. So the duct tape turned out to be a completely indispensable item. They were very careful about what they put in that lunar module capsule. But you also had to imagine that the unexpected was going to happen. And as much as we all joke about it, we all also know exactly how useful duct tape can be, useful in ways you can't even imagine until you need it. And so that was, I actually think that was really ingenious of someone to say, why don't we take a roll of duct tape? And for someone else to say, that's a good use of fuel to go to the moon. Your chapter eight of One Giant Leap is titled, America Almost Forgets to Take a Flag to the Moon. So I, I think, or I like to think anyway, that somebody was thinking, Let's do the practical. Let's get that duct tape up there. And they weren't thinking of that flag planting moment, which now is uh, in 500 years, I believe you say in one giant leap, something like that, that people will remember that moment more than anything else that happens in the 20th century. That's that's always going to be such a pivotal moment. Yet in the 2018 movie On the Landing called First Man, they cut that moment out entirely and they suffered for it, not only with Americans, not only with people who said, well, hey, I'm, I'm waiting for that moment. That's the icing on the cake. I, I talked about that narrative arc in the beginning and so did you about that's what, after you roll the credits, after we get to see the flag. Come on, give us that moment. We expect it. But also from that storytelling perspective, that we want to see the full story. And then I pick up one giant leap and I see NASA wasn't even thinking of that, of the pageantry of it, of the, of the patriotic idea of planting a flag, which goes back so many centuries as a symbol of, hey, we were here. So how does NASA decide that they're going to bring the flag ultimately? Who is it that reminds them? And, and where does that come about? It is kind of funny. There was nothing more determinedly American than the race to the moon in the 1960s, right? These men and women weren't sitting around all day thinking, I'm such a great patriot, but they were furiously devoting themselves to a mission on behalf of the country that had been laid out in part as a patriotic duty, as an answer to an important global rivalry, an important global challenge. And yet they thought to take the duct tape, but they didn't think to take the flag. And, you know, for me, it's a wonderful story for two reasons. First, it really shows that NASA was completely focused on the pragmatic problems. A flag is a moment of celebration. It's a moment of human joy. When you get to the top of Mount Everest, when you get to the North Pole, when you get to the South Pole, you plant a flag, you stand there and get your picture taken. That wasn't really how NASA was thinking about this mission at all. And at some point in the spring of 1969, there was a flurry of memos like maybe we should do something. NASA created a committee, the Committee on Symbolic Activities for the First Lunar Landing. It's sort of Sounds like exactly the kind of committee you would imagine NASA creating, especially the post-Apollo NASA. And the committee doesn't even meet until April. So as of April, 12 weeks before the first moon mission, there's no plan to take a flag, and there is no flag. And at that meeting, um, they invited a kind of important senior technical manager from Houston, from Mission Control, named Jack Kinsler. And he said... If you're going to the moon, you got to take a flag and you got to plant the flag. This is the most dramatic. This isn't Columbus. This isn't Lewis and Clark. This is humanity leaving Earth and going to another planetary body. You got to plant a flag. That's what explorers do. And he actually had a plan with him at that meeting. The problem, of course, is that on the moon, if you just put a flag on a pole and put it in the moon dirt, the flag's just going to hang there limp because there's no air on the moon, there's no atmosphere. And so at that meeting, he had already designed this sort of clever contraption of a flag that had two poles. It had the standard vertical pole, and then it had a horizontal pole. And for packing purposes, it was sort of like tent poles. They were, they were packed together parallel. And then the horizontal pole was hinged to the vertical pole at the top. The astronauts just would swing it up into position like a curtain rod, and then you would slide the flag out like a curtain. The flag was an off-the-shelf flag, probably bought at Sears, hemmed along the top. And so that would allow you to display the flag as if it were flying 
even though there was no air. And the, the, the committee of senior NASA officials loved that idea. And they said, Jack, go make the flag. Let's, let's, let's see if we can get this thing on the lunar module. It happened so late that there are checklists of all the duties that the astronauts are supposed to do on the moon. Each set of astronauts had check, had printed checklists so they knew what to do next, so they didn't forget anything. It wasn't that important on the two and a half hour moonwalk, but on the seven hour moonwalks, it really was. And Armstrong and Aldrin's checklists were literally printed right on the cuff of their spacesuit gloves. And plant the flag isn't on the list of things to do on the surface of the moon because the checklists had been printed before the flag was designed and approved. And in the end, Jack Kinsler and his technical services staff made the flag and he was put on a Gulfstream jet and flown from Houston to the Cape about five days before the launch. And he supervised the installation of the flag and the flag actually rode outside. It was clipped to the ladder because it came too late to even begin to consider putting it inside the cabin with the astronauts. That was the kind of thing that would have required months of planning and analysis. So NASA did almost forget to take a flag to the moon. And then, of course, as you point out, that picture of the astronauts with the flag, that really becomes one of the great iconic images not just of Apollo 11, which it was, half the newspapers in the world use that picture of Armstrong and Aldrin with the flag as their front page picture. You know, that picture becomes an iconic picture of each of the missions. And especially when we start to get real-time color TV back from the moon, it's such a vivid, beautiful, you know, bright colors in this sea of black and white and gray. It's really something I think people end up identifying with not just in a patriotic sense, but you're sort of looking at this alien landscape with the spaceship that you're not familiar with and the human beings you can't really identify because they're in spacesuits, and there's the flag. And you're sort of, okay, I, the flag I understand. So it is kind of funny. In fact, not only did they almost forget to take it, the head of the manned spacecraft center in Houston asked permission to skip the flag in the future. Okay, we flew the flag on Apollo 11. We don't need the flag anymore. We did that. And NASA headquarters says, no, 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 no. <laughs> We're going to plant a flag every single time we go. And the astronauts didn't make a big deal out of the planting of it ever. They didn't make it a huge televised ritual. They did do it on TV. People got to watch. But what did become important were the pictures of the astronauts alongside the flag. And 50 years later, those are some of the most popular and sort of vivid images we have of going to the moon. And the flag leads me perfectly into what will be my last question. And that's that it's something cited, what you just so easily explained and is easily knowable about why the flag flew when they were indeed on the moon. Because there's no myth that's more enduring or frustrating, not to mention get you slugged by Buzz Aldrin, than people who insist that the moon landing was faked. Now, facts are stubborn things, as John Adams said, but so are people who refuse to believe them and would rather cling to something that does belong more in the realm of fiction. When people finish one giant leap, they take it out into the world. They maybe encounter somebody who I'll call a moonshot denier. What is the one thing that, to you, simply proves to somebody, if they can be persuaded by facts, that it's real and that not only was it real, but that it's something we should carry in our everyday lives to fulfill our dreams and to realize the impossible is possible. So let's not just poo-poo it. You sort of get my character right. I, I don't have that much patience with the moon deniers, <laughs> the moon landing deniers, for a simple reason. They aren't interested in being persuaded, and there's nothing you can say that's going to persuade them. But there is one undeniable, unavoidable fact that instantly deflates the whole idea that, that the moon race was fake. And that is this. It was a race right to the end. I mentioned earlier that there was a Soviet spaceship at the moon when Apollo 11 arrived. The job of that ship was to land on the moon and race back with moon rocks and beat the United States to at least having the moon rocks. They could say, well, we got the moon rocks back to earth, you know, nine hours sooner and we didn't even need to send human beings. And that probe called Luna 15 was well known at the time. It made the front page of the New York Times two or three days in a row 
as Apollo 11 was flying to the moon, the New York Times and the Washington Post were also writing about this mysterious Russian mission. We didn't know what the purpose of it was, and the Russians were very secretive, but people guessed what the purpose of it was. As it happens, the Soviet scientists miscalculated, and Luna 15 crashed into the side of a mountain. So it was not a successful mission. Easy to laugh it off, except an identical probe the following September, about 14 months later, did exactly what Luna 15 was trying to do. It landed on the moon, it drilled a hole, it got uncontaminated samples of moon dirt and rocks, and flew home and brought that moon dirt successfully to the Soviet Union. So they knew what they were doing robotically. But the point of the story is, if we had been faking, if we had been cheating, if we had been exaggerating what we were up to, the Soviet Union would have revealed that fakery in the blink of an eye. They were monitoring every communication. They were monitoring every single thing we did. They had big telescopes. They had big radio telescopes to listen to what was going on. And this was not some kind of goofy athletic rivalry between Duke and UNC basketball teams. This was a real geopolitical contest over who would rule the world. And so it wasn't as if the Russians would have thought to themselves, ah, they're faking, ha ha, we'll go along with the joke. No, they would have outed us in the blink of an eye. And there's no possibility that it was a grand conspiracy. And you know what? The Soviets were in on it too. That, it's just ridiculous. So the easy answer is there's no way it was fake. 400,000 people were involved. <laughs> so you're talking about with their family members, literally millions of people. The idea that it was fake is ridiculous, but the deniers will always say, no, you don't understand this, that, that. You know what? The Soviets weren't in on the joke. <laughs> so, But there's something more important, which is I don't waste any time with those people. I wouldn't waste my time even punching them. <laughs> I don't want to live in the pinched, shriveled up world that they live in where this didn't happen. I know it happened. I've spent years of my life trying to understand what it required. And I've come away with nothing but admiration. My admiration for the astronauts is greater. No one worked harder than the astronauts. They literally, day after day, week after week, month after month, furiously to learn what they had to learn and also to support the work of everybody else. But what the women in the computer factory and the women in the parachute factory and the men and women putting together the lunar module and the command module, the quantity of work, the quantity of human ingenuity that went into this project to deny that that actually happened, that is so disrespectful to and so dismissive of, of literally a whole generation of people and what they accomplished that, that it's, just, it's just not even worth having a conversation about. We did it. And that's the universe I want to live in because what it took from people was really remarkable. And what it inspired them to do was really remarkable. There are no superheroes in the story of the race to the moon. It was a heroic achievement, but it was done by ordinary people. And to deny that is so disrespectful that it's not, it's not even worth talking about. What's worth learning about is what, what it took. And also to appreciate that the people who did it are no different than we are today. If someone were to ask us to do something that extraordinary and give us sort of the right rationale and the right motivation, we would do that today too. And by the way, you know, we decoded the genome. We invented the internet. Americans are still capable of great things and still do them. They don't always look exactly like going to the moon, but we love to tackle something really hard and then make it happen. Well, Charles Fishman, author of One Giant Leap, you called this a wonderful story. It is many wonderful stories that are in your book. Thanks to the people who did this, we can look up in the night sky and say, hey, we walked in your face, as Buzz Aldrin said, you know, in <laughs> 30 Rock, now that I'm thinking of it. Hey, that, that's it. We did that. And we all, whoever we are, however how low we feel sometimes, we have a little bit of that spark of ingenuity and being able to solve problems in us. 
I'm so happy that you took the time to join me today. I really appreciate it. Thank you for that. Thank you for welcoming readers like myself who would never fit. I'd hit my head if I tried to get into that lunar capsule. You can go, in fact, see one of them in Long Island at the museum. Everybody, every corner of the country has some investment in this story, a piece of what we sent to the moon. It's really a fantastic voyage, especially appreciative that I read it, I believe, before anyone even outside your family had read it. I got a very early copy, and boy, am I glad I did. I hope that folks will pick it up, check out the book, enjoy these wonderful stories, and One Giant Leap really is that special. Dean, I, I so appreciate it, and you've got it exactly right. It's, it is a story to sort of make you feel good about what they did then and remind you what you yourself are capable of. It wasn't 410,000 people who sent us to the moon. It was individuals doing their own work, going beyond what even they imagined they could accomplish. So it is a great tale, and as you say, it's a whole set of stories inside the big story. We copy you down, Eagle. Houston, Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. Roger, Tranquility. We copy you on the ground. You got a bunch of guys about to turn blue. We're breathing again. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Again, the book is One Giant Leap, the impossible mission that flew us to the moon. As always, you can find the Amazon link to purchase your copy at historyauthor.com. By buying the book through HistoryAuthor.com, you help us keep the life support system on our time machine humming like usual. My thanks to Charles Fishman for flying us to the moon, fulfilling a dream that's as old as the first wolf howling up at the night sky. You can follow our guest on Twitter at CFishman, that's the letter C and the last name F-I-S-H-M-A-N. And while you're at it, let us know what you think of the book and the interview. You can find me on Twitter at History Dean or the show on Instagram and Facebook. And if you're in a space exploration mood, I recommend checking out my interview with veteran journalist Lynn Schur about her book, Sally Ride, America's First Woman in Space. And since we talked about how inspiring One Giant Leap is, if you're looking to tell a young person the story, you can enjoy my chat with illustrator Dal Pumirik. Her book is Counting on Catherine, How Catherine Johnson Saved Apollo 13. Well, until our next moonwalk into the past together, thanks so much for time traveling with us today, and have a great week. We still call it Broadway, but what's in a name? Take it from Georgie, it isn't the same. On the east side, west side, things ain't like before. There are tears in the eyes of the regular guys. Oh, New York ain't New York anymore. The reason this was so much fun, to... <laughs> we're going we're gonna to have a dog moment here. Is that Mutnik? Did you actually bring the <laughs> Russian dog? <laughs> oh, hold on. Stand by. <laughs>